You and I are the descendants of evolutionary winners. Our species has been in this world for 300,000 years. Life on this planet goes back at least two or even three billion years from the moment that we were single-celled life forms trying to make our way in a constantly hostile environment that wanted to kill us. The brutal logic of evolution is incredibly straightforward. It is survival of the fittest. The organism has to survive an ever-changing world where there are predators, there are hot phases and cold phases, poisons and toxins. And our biology is the first defense that we have. It is the only defense that most life forms have. Almost everything in your biology is automatic. I mean, the vast number of processes that your body carries out on any given minute, from your heart beating, your breathing, the hormones that you secrete, most of that is just purely and completely automatic with no real ability for you to intervene with your consciousness. But there are also limits to those automatic processes, right? I mean, your body can get into places where there are no obvious automatic solutions. There are, are times when you can be up against, say, a predator or some complex situation where biology and evolution have not hardwired a response. And this is the reason why we have consciousness. Consciousness is at its most fundamental level, the ability to exercise choices in an uncertain world. It's the ability to even override whatever your automatic processes are and exercise agency. To put yourself above evolution and make a decision, that is this most fundamental thing that makes us human and really, honestly, makes us great. And the most important tool that consciousness has to understand the outside world is sensation. The ability to take information from your nervous system, from your peripheral nerves, and identify something that's going on in the environment. When you feel it, that is what your consciousness can look at. Because if you think about it, whatever your mind, wherever your mind is, it's probably located inside your body, right? It's somewhere in your brain, but your brain cannot directly understand anything that's going on in the world, right? Your brain is, it's stuck in here. You, you can point to your head and say, I'm in here somehow. And yet it is connected to those outside world through these nerves, which go through the spinal column and out to your fingers and your toes. It connects to your ears, it connects to your nose, it connects to your eyeballs. And somehow there is this translation going between the nerves and the external world because you are locked inside. But there's also a hell of a lot more going on than what your senses can understand from the world, right? I mean, right now, you, me, everyone else is being bombarded by these cosmic rays that are coming from the origins of the solar system and stars long, long away. But you can't feel any of that, right? There's nothing you can do about cosmic rays. And there's a number of other things like radio signals going through your body right now. Again, you can't feel any of that. So instead, what your sensory system is doing is saying, look, I can't deal with that information. Instead, the information, the only information that it will pay attention to are things that you, with your consciousness, can do something about. And this is 
the beauty of this whole situation. It tells us that when we feel absolutely anything from a sensation such as hot or cold, tingling, anything, to emotions like fear or anxiety or overwhelming love, all of those sensations, those feelings are choices on which you can exercise a level of conscious intervention. And this leads to this wonderful idea that I have been working on for about a decade, which is the principle of the wedge, which is where consciousness, this ability to think and perceive the world, allows you to intervene directly into your biology. Now, I know that sounds a little bit like insanity. It sounds like mind over matter. There's things that you would think that your hidden biology uh, cannot be affected by with your consciousness. We've for a long time thought that there's been a firewall between, you know, your heartbeat and your uh, parts of your respiration and the way your, your nerves work uh, and um, what you can think about. Like, you can't think your nerves to send different information to the world, can you? Well, you might not be able to just look at them and think that way, but you can certainly change it with just a few little actions. Now, the secret to mind over matter isn't sort of like levitation or, or you know, mind reading or something like that, but it's actually the most simple and most basic thing that you have done your entire life. Now, think for just a moment about your hidden biology. And there's one thing that, you know, if you've been following me for years, you know I talk about a lot, which is, you know, the way we react to hot and cold environments. And one of the things that we have remote control over is the process of vasoconstriction and vasodilation. Now, your arterial system is about 60,000 miles of tubes. I mean, it can go to the moon and back if you were gonna go stretch it um, from end to end, but it's all bundled in your body. And on every single artery, there is something called smooth muscle. And its role is to constrict your peripheral um, system, you know, your arms, your legs, your hands, and your feet, that sort of stuff, and shunt blood into your core to keep you safe from the effects of hypothermia. Uh, and it's a, a very, very important and useful biological system. Well, you may not be able to control the, the articulation of those smooth muscles by just thinking about it, but all you need to do is just walk into a cold environment and boom, you trigger it. So it's interesting that your actions actually can control this automatic system. Now, it's not purely with thought, although there is a way to do it with thought, but we can get to that in another podcast, but it's purely just your decisions about the world change your inner biology. But one of the things about the modern world, uh, barring that consciousness uh, element, is that we live in a world where there aren't actually a lot of those automatic changes anymore. I mean, right, this vasoconstriction, it was a survival mechanism because in the past, your body would frequently uh, enter into a constantly shifting and changing and morphing environment. But today, well, I mean, a lot of those things aren't around anymore, right? Like, you don't actually need to experience vasoconstriction. The very idea, the very thought of one of us stepping outside of our front door and putting our feet in snow or jumping into ice water, that sounds, I mean, it sounds crazy. It sounds absolutely painful. Uh, and, you know, 
you probably know me as a guy who takes a lot of ice baths. That's true. But when I tell somebody who doesn't do that, you know, a sane person, right? If I talk to a sane person who never jumps into an ice bath, they tell me, look, cold for me is a particular problem. Uh, you know, it might be okay for you, sir, but cold, I hate it. And I would never, ever touch it. Well, that's in part because we have have a penchant for comfort. We have a penchant for not wanting to put ourselves into environments that change, environments that make us uh, challenge our innate biology. And this is for a very, very good evolutionary reason, right? In the past, in that 300,000 or 3 billion year stretch of history, change was always the constant, right? You're on the plains of Africa and, you know, it may be temperate most of the time, but sometimes the temperature spikes way up and sometimes that temperature goes way, way down. And the only technology you had for a lot of that time period was just, well, it was your body, right? That was the pinnacle of technology. And, you know, there's a way you could even think of it that maybe your body is the consciousness's vehicle in the world, right? It, it, is, it is the thing that you honed. Our species, our, our gist towards living on this planet has honed for that entire evolutionary process. It is our chariot. And we would use it and make that technology better by simply existing in multiple environments so that our automatic biology um, could do the hard work and we wouldn't have to trouble our minds. And yet there was also this parallel side, right? Comfort was the reward. We didn't actually want our bodies to do any extra work in any particular environment. That's because our consciousness is essentially a conservative mode of acting in the world, right? It's better to have no choice and let yourself exist on autopilot than actually put in effort. This was this saved the energy that we had to collect from the world through eating, right? We, we, we wanted to save ourselves from the environment. But something changed, right? It, maybe it was the beginnings of agriculture. Maybe it was industrialization. Maybe it was the advent of electric lighting in like 19, early 1900s, 1907-ish. But somehow we fundamentally broke our relationship with the natural world and the natural variations that were always giving signals to our nervous system. And instead, we outsourced that work to the strength of our tools and the strength of our technology. Now, not all of that was necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there's some great books saying that technology has altered us uh, since the very beginning. I mean, the advent of fire uh, changed the shape of our jaws. It changed the number of teeth and the shape of our teeth because we were now able to extract nutrition from our environment by cooking things and our jaws got smaller. It was, again, it was a more efficient way to work. And so technology is not necessarily bad. In fact, it's giving us so many benefits. Unfortunately, those changes are also happening so fast and so frequently that we're not actually connected to the biology in the way it was intended to work in the field. Now, go back to the African savanna. And, you know, your choices weren't only environmental. It wasn't only hot and cold, but it was also predators. It was, it was the, there was a lion coming at you and you had to decide, oh my God, I have to use this spear or I have to book it up a tree. I had to go into fight or flight. And there was a, and, and that was both a conscious decision. You saw the lion, but it was also an unconscious decision because that hidden biology 
also got triggered. It released adrenaline, it released cortisol, and that that lowered, that increased your pain threshold, increased your energy, and allowed you to act without worrying so much about your sensory system because you were going to be totally focused on that lion. Now, I don't know about you, but in the modern world, I've never fought a lion. I mean, I've seen them from safely on a, on a raised platform or from behind iron cage bars, but I, I don't have to fight the lion. And instead, there's this evolutionary mismatch because our nervous system really only has two modes that it can um, sit in, right? It can be in rest and digest, and it can be fight or flight. And these are actually innervated by the anatomy of the vagus nerve, uh, which has two branches. And it's not like rest and digest is off and fight or flight is on. It's actually both are very active processes in the body. Instead, you have to choose which side of the vagus nerve is active at any one time. Now, in the modern world, again, consciousness has allowed us to move towards comfort. The real dangers, the lions, the tigers, the the hots, the colds, uh, the uncertainty of our food system, most of those problems have been more or less completely solved. Now, the existential threats that we face are our taxes, are, are, are our kids going to get a college education, or will I be able to meet a mate who I actually want to spend time with? All of these things are remote existential problems, right? These aren't things that are going to immediately get you, even if maybe we think that our poor healthcare system might eventually kill us, it's not going to do it right now. And you're not going to go shove a sphere into your healthcare system. It's something that you're going to have to think with your consciousness to get out of. But our stone-aged bodies never evolve for that, right? Instead, I sit and I think about my tax problems and my body responds by releasing those same chemicals that it used against the lions on the savannas of Africa. I suddenly get more energy. I suddenly increase my pain threshold because I am getting to fight something that is right next to me, that is going to kill me right now. And that immediacy is actually a real real problem. Because what happens is when you release those chemicals but don't have a physical output, well, that doesn't feel so good. I mean, you get that feeling of, well, it's anxiety. You get this feeling of needing to expend your energy, but your action is actually you need to think harder about the problem. This leads to unfortunately, a whole bunch of chronic problems that are rife in the modern world. I mean, we don't get killed by lions anymore, right? We get killed by cancer. We get killed by autoimmune illnesses. We get killed by the lack of sleep that drives us into uh, sort of a constant downward spiral. It's not to say, again, that the modern world is a problem. I'd much rather be uh, someone who gets to do desk work instead of do hunting lion work. But the bodies are no longer able to truly adapt to the world that is around us. And this is a problem. It's a problem um, of our environment. And it's also the problem of our consciousness. Now, remember I said that you could affect that, that unconscious system of vasodilation and vasoconstriction by just moving into a new environment? Well, in the old days, there was this match between how you acted in your environment and your automatic um, biology. Like you would naturally have to exercise those systems. 
But because we don't exercise them now, we need to intentionally give ourselves stress that changes our relationship with that environment. And now you know that you can start to control some of those unconscious processes. This actually has enormous ramifications for many of the problems that we're plagued with today, with, with those autoimmune issues, those depression, those anxiety, these ennui, this feeling of disconnection with the world around us because we're so focused on our phones, which are five inches from our face. None of that was natural, right? And we wonder why we feel so bad about how we are in the world. Now, another concept that I want to introduce to you is the idea of macrocosm and microcosm, because this will make a lot of sense a little bit later. But let me talk to you about how your inner biology actually works. Now, your consciousness is maybe like 10% of the biological um, output of your brain and your body. Like your, the words you think in your brain, that is just a fraction of what actually your mental energy uh, and who you are really is. Instead, you have all of these systems that are going automatically. There's hormones, there's different types of cells in your body, right? You've got liver cells and you've got kidney cells, you've got intestine cells, blood cells, all these things. And they all have sort of their own jobs and they know their jobs really well at a very, very, very small level. And they just trust that whoever's controlling the brain up there is going to be able to figure out how to make good decisions and those cells just need to do their job. And we also have immune cells. And you know, there's a lot of immune cells. I'm gonna simplify this very, very greatly. Um, but we have these things called macrophages. We have killer T cells and B cells, and, and they all have different jobs, but essentially it's to either kill cells that are doing the wrong job, cells that might you know multiply and become cancer, or it's to go and kill invaders, the viruses, the bacteria, the other things that will eventually wreck your whole body and your whole system. Well, these things, the entire immune system, I like to think of them like a pack of wolves, right? These are the wolves that are on your team. They're gonna go see that bacteria and they are gonna munch up that bacteria for the greater good of the body. And they may not know everything that's going on outside your eyeballs, but they are actually feeling what's going on. Now, if you're like, let's say you're climbing up a mountain and in doing it, it's a big challenge and maybe there's even some scary parts. You see a cliff and you feel, oh my God, I could fall off the cliff and other things that might happen on the mountains. Well, you're going up there and you're experiencing the mountain, but those things inside your body are also experiencing the mountain through the lens of whatever hormones that you're secreting in that moment. So if you're on the mountain and you're totally calm, you have all these calm rest and digest things that they are reading in the environment that you are literally secreting around them. Whereas if you are anxious and you are fighting the actual bear that was actually going after you, you're fumbling for your bear spray uh, to spray it in its bear face, those immune cells are bathing in uh, the hormones that you release. They're bathing in adrenaline. They're bathing in cortisol. And the really fascinating thing, now if you look at these um, immune cells under a microscope and you dose them, you, you drench them in an adrenaline. A macrophage looks a little bit like an amoeba. Think of like a blobular cell with a little flagella, little arms, like a little octopusy stuff going on around it. You bathe that thing in adrenaline and those flagella, they start waving like crazy, right? They start, it, it gets energized and it starts um, 
you know, patrolling its area and really looking for the bad guys that are going on around there. And you had that ability to change the way that your macrophages operate in the world by experiencing the bear in front of you. Isn't that strange how there's this lens that, that actually alters the behavior of those macrophages? The behavior of your immune system in general? And it goes the other way too right? If you have, let's say, a leaky gut, if you have a problem in, in, in your, your poops, like if you take a really bad poop today and, and, and you poop out your life force, you have a really bad day, right? Those interior systems make you feel different um, up in your brain, up in the words that you're, you produce. There is a relationship between these two things. Now, when we talk about autoimmune illnesses, remember this pack of wolves in your body? Well, you're not giving it the right um, inputs anymore, right? You're, you're not fighting bears and, and then dropping the adrenaline to give you the correct physical output that then, you know, where the macrophage is supposed to do what the macrophage is supposed to do. Instead, what you're doing is you're dropping these adrenaline responses and these pain-reducing responses and not doing anything. And that's the problem. That's, that's where we start getting, in my professional medical opinion, I'm not a doctor, but I've been doing this for a long time. What you're doing is, is making those immune cells go crazy because you're dropping, you're giving it the signal to go attack, but there's nothing for it to attack. So what it does is it, it starts eating your intestinal linings and Crohn's disease or the myelin sheaths for multiple sclero sclerosis, the myelin sheaths on your uh, uh, axion nerves. It's chewing on the joints in your body and giving you rheumatoid arthritis. It's doing all of these things that it's not supposed to do because those wolves are too energized and honestly, they're a little bit bored. But giving environmental exposure, the correct signals from your environment to those, those, those interior systems lets those wolves find something else to do. Taking an ice bath, going out and doing something physical, well, it's like giving those wolves chew toys. Now, if you've read my book, What Doesn't Kill Us, or if you've followed anything about um, the Iceman Wim Hof, then you've probably heard about something called the endotoxin study. And this was when professors over at Radboud University in Holland tested Wim Hof, when Wim Hof said this absolutely insane thing, which was he can control his, and turn on and off his immune system with just the power of his brain, breath work, and ice exposure. And those scientists said it wasn't possible, but then they tested him and they injected him with this toxin, which was E. coli bacteria that had been killed, um, so it was dead. But nonetheless, it had those cytokines. It had the messages on its cell walls to, to make your immune system say, hey, this is a real problem. And these doctors had actually developed uh, tests to test anti-rejection drugs uh, that you might need if you get an organ transplant, where you actually have to turn off your immune system. And the way those drugs work is if they, when they turn off your immune system and you gave them the same E. coli, you would have no um, response, no physiological response. Whereas the normal physiological response is to start feeling like you have a fever, like you start having a flu. You have those aches and those pains and these feelings of malaise. Uh, Wim Hof said that he could be cyclosporin and they did this study and it was great. And they injected him with endotoxin and he had no response. 
which showed that he was able to actually change the way his immune system worked to the environment. It was the first time this had ever been done in science. And since then, there have been subsequent studies and they're truly awesome. Go read my book, What Doesn't Kill Us, if you want to know more. And it's also YouTube videos and stuff all about this out there. But the fascinating thing was that this worked. And when I started doing ice baths and breath work, all modeled on the Wim Hof method, I also found that an autoimmune illness that I had been, that I'd been suffering from since I was a kid totally went away. Uh, now, my immune, says, immune problem was not as bad as, as, you know, it wasn't like a marquee like Crohn's disease or lupus or anything like that. But I had gotten these canker sores that were the size of a dime in my mouth since I was about two years old. I don't know how I got them, but a canker sore is essentially, it probably was some version of herpes that I was exposed to from the environment. And then you get these, these big, nasty mouth ulcers. And I would get them for a, maybe one week every month of my life, going back to three to about 30. And then I met Wim Hof and I wrote this big story that was in Playboy magazine. And, and I, I found that ice water was awesome and I could do it. It was all hunky-dory and awesome. Uh, and I just kept doing it because I liked the way it made me feel. And then my canker sores, they never came back. It, it changed the way my immune system worked because I had given those wolves of my immune system chew toys. And it was awesome. And it, it all comes back to this idea of an evolutionary mismatch. And the fact that all of us, even though we are living in a world of comfort, we are living in a world where everything feels, well, easy and sort of muted, but we still have those Stone Age bodies that are able to adapt to the environment very quickly. This, these changes, these technological changes have really only accelerated to this point of insanity in the last 100, 150 years. And with the advent of social media, it's probably even more insane right now. But evolution works on such longer timescales that we can still access that evolutionary power that we have in all of us. And these are not superpowers. They are not energy coming down from heaven where you have breathed yourself into a pranic state of enlightenment. No, all it's doing is enlivening our bodies and enlivening the way that we can enact with the world and strengthening that unconscious system that we have forsaken. And here's where things get super, super interesting, where all of that stuff I was talking about consciousness in the beginning suddenly should become into focus so you understand why I'm getting on this platform and standing on my soapbox. You see, we have the ability to intercede through consciousness to affect our unconscious systems more or less directly. Now, it's not perfect, obviously. This is not going to give you superpowers, but it is going to allow you to become uh, in connection with your physiology by using the environment that exists around you. It is what I call the wedge, and I wrote a book about it. There's a link down in the show notes. You can find it on my website, scottcarney.com. There's audiobooks. There's all of that stuff. And But it really is this fundamental superpower. And I didn't invent it. I'm not even the first person to talk about uh, using your consciousness to change your inner biology. If this goes back at least 5,000 years into the yogic text, I maybe have a 
slightly different spin on it. And honestly, you probably already know how to interact with it already. In fact, the very first thing you do when you are born is you come out from the very warm womb that you've been in and you pop out into the world and, you know, you're, you, you suddenly realize that you have a body and you have to move it and use it. And even just moving your arm for the very first time is essentially the wedge, right? It's essentially saying, okay, I'm going to use my brain to change the way my physiology acts in the environment. The wedge is a choice, right? It's that time when you decide that you have a choice and you activate your choice and you choose to change the way your body reacts to external stimuli. And we all do this all the time. If you go out into a if, if you're looking outside your window and you're like, ooh, that looks cold, or oh my God, that looks hot, and you have this sort of internal sensation in your body, but you decide to do it anyway, and at first there's a little bit of discomfort, and then you realize, hey, it's actually not so bad, boom, you were practicing the wedge. If somebody um, tickles you, right? You know, somebody goes under your rib cage and you know, you know, you know moves their fingernails above your solar plexus or wherever you are most ticklish, and you say to yourself, "I'm not ticklish," or whatever it is you do, right? It's not just words, right? It's also, it's also some you're navigating some sort of sensation in your body, and you say, "No, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna giggle." That's also the wedge. You are interceding with an autonomic process and saying, no, I can be more conscious in this moment and change the way I react. Well, when you do that, you're switching from one side of the vagus nerve to the other side of the vagus nerve. You're changing the automatic reactions that we have. And by doing that, you give yourself range in just about any environment so that you can enjoy it, so that you can can not look at the world through the lens of eternal comfort where you get increasingly, increasingly narrow in your range, but instead you say, I can actually act in more range. And in doing so, you also balance your nervous system. You allow it not to go crazy because you're looking at your taxes all the time and not correctly engaging the fight or flight responses that we all have in our bodies in a correct way with the environment itself. And to understand how this works, we need to actually start understanding the neurology of the body and where, where in the body it interacts with the brain. Because once we understand that pathway, all of this makes sense in a very logical and straightforward way. And to do this, I'm going to have to make a little bit of a straw man argument. I'm going to have to say something about your biology that is not actually true, but we're going to simplify the whole system so that I can at least explain it in a way. I'm going to say that we're looking at a baby. And we are going to say that this baby has never experienced anything else in the world. As they say in Latin, it is tabula rasa. It is a blank slate. Now, the truth is that babies aren't actually like this. They're not true blank slates. But allow me to make this conceit for the ease of explanation. And we will, in future episodes, dig deep into how that slate, what is actually written on that slate. But for now, just go with me. This baby has never experienced anything in the world, and it went from the warm interior of the mother into the icy cold reality of the world that we live in. Now, 
this is a very, very powerful moment in that child's experience. And it has literally gone from zero to one in an instant. Well, what is actually going on? How does it experience that world? Okay. So let's start at the peripheral nerves. Remember, the brain is locked inside our bodies. Like it's this little, little bit of consciousness in this world of meat, and it's trying to understand the world, and it needs to do it through the nerves, the peripheral nerves, the, the hands, the feet, the toes, the chest. That all of those nerves which are touching the world for the very first time detect information and the nerves are able to get a quality, a, a character of that information. But there's no understanding of that information. There's a volume switch, and this is loud, because there is nothing, it has never felt anything else. And this loud signal shoots up the arms and, and up the legs and makes it all the way to the spinal column, where it, which is the highway to the brain, and it rockets up there all this new information, and it goes to the very bottom of the brain stem, and makes its way to the very center of the emotional cortex, which is the limbic system. This is the first time what your consciousness really, really does anything. The lower brainstem is just automatic reactions. It makes it to the limbic system. And I like to think of the limbic system as something uh, like a library. And in this library, there is, of course, a librarian. And, you know, because this is the very first thing this baby has ever experienced in the world, this library is brand new. It is completely devoid of any books. And the librarian's job is to make sense of the world. It just got the first delivery of a book and she looks at it and has no idea what this information is because there's no reference for it. So what does she do? Well, she takes this book, this signal, and sends it over to the paralimbic system, which is a brain structure which is right next door. And I like to think of the paralimbic system as a book bindery. And there's a book binder living in this book bindery. And what does he do to make sense of this signal that he just received from the limbic librarian? Looks at it and he bonds it with your current emotional state. Now, this baby has never experienced anything, and this is also where my metaphor breaks down, because how does that emotional state get there? That's for a future episode. But right now, that emotional state is unparalleled horror, and oh my God, waving the arms in the air. This is terrible. This is cold. This is death. Because honestly, the nervous system and evolution have only programmed us to really understand one or two things, and death is the thing that understands, because this is a negative stimulus. And it binds that cold air with death, and it sends it back down to the library, and the library looks at this new symbol of the sensation coming from the outside world, plus the internal experience, the emotion, and she says, great, now I know, cold is death and she files it away in the library and goes on to collect other symbols that are coming in from the outside world. Well, now let's fast forward. A lot of things are going on, but we're going to fast forward. We're just going to look at this one symbol, this one sensation that's coming in. And she, the next time that that baby feels that same sensation of cold, the signal rockets through the peripheral nerves. It makes it up the brainstem. It makes it into her library and she takes it and she looks at that signal. And what does she do? She says, oh, I've seen this before. That particular composition of neural uh, signals that are filing those sensations, that quality, well, that quality is death. I already knew that. 
So she takes the old book off the shelf, she dusts it off and says, this is death. And the body goes on to take its automatic reactions to that because it knows what it is. It is death. Well, here's the crazy, crazy thing about neural symbols. It means that when you are experiencing the outside world, you are living in your emotional past, unless it is the first time you feel something. And neural symbols, when you add them up, and you're not just feeling one thing at any particular moment, your nerves are taking in tens of thousands of, of, of data from the air quality to the, the temperature to the emotional reactions. All of these signals are coming in and they're all different neural symbols. They're all different books on her library shelves. But they're all and all together composed. When they come together, this is the metaphor of hardware and software. The hardware are the nerves and those anatomical structures, and the software are the neural symbols. These are the bits and bytes that make up consciousness itself and the interactions with the world itself. And if you Think about a computer program, one bit of information, one byte of information. You can't do anything with that. That's just an on-off switch, right? But when you get billions or trillions of them together, you're all of a sudden composing uh, whole programs. You're, you're, you have Word on you. You have Google. You have, all of these things add up to something. And it's the same way with consciousness, is that one neural symbol doesn't mean anything, but very soon this baby is loading up those shelves with books, with new neural symbols. And that is what consciousness is. And conscious, the way you experience it, is your emotional past, both intellectually, both in the way you conceive of the world with the words, but also with the biological outputs, the automatic outputs that your body fires. So that next time you feel that cold water or you're, you're secreting the adrenaline and the cortisol automatically. And the other thing about symbols is that they can combine with other symbols. So you may feel cold and have a certain texture of light one day, but then you feel cold in a different texture of light the other day. And that creates yet even more neural symbols where those emotional reactions are engaged and are part of that experience as you move through the world. Now, the tragedy of neural symbols is that we don't, we cannot never get them off the library shelves. There is no delete. There is no book return or fire sale on books. Uh, no, those books are locked in there forever because of the peculiar way our biology works. However, you can add new books to the shelf. And this is where the wedge gets super, super interesting. Because again, you can sort of hack that system. And you can create a new emotional response to that external stimulus. And in terms of cold, obviously I'm the ice bath guy, so I'm gonna go right over to cold. When you jump into ice water, and instead of saying this is death, which is of course what we all think naturally, instead of thinking death, you can think that sensation on my skin, that data that's coming into my limbic library, you can tell the bookbinder to get involved and say, no, that is not death. That is joy. And when you do that, your entire nervous system changes because all of a sudden, the way that you are reacting in the world 
fundamentally changes at a biological level because you're no longer secreting the adrenaline and the cortisol in that cold environment. You are secreting the rest and digest hormones and the cocktail inside of you. And this is how you take control of your nervous system. This is the power of the wedge. This is the way you fight depression and anxiety and those automatic programs that we are always trying to encounter and trying to alter our experience of the world. You do it with the wedge. You do it by thinking your way into new neural connections and new ways to interact with the, your emotions to the world itself at large. Now I'm going to sort of run down this episode. I've been talking for 40 minutes and I can go on for another 40 minutes. In fact, I can probably go on for 10 hours about this because in future episodes, I'm going to have to talk about how that baby that I created, that tabula rasa is actually not truly a tabula rasa and there actually were emotional reactions in it. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to go into dreaming. It's going to go into sleeping. It's going to go into the forge of our emotional center at all at the heart of all of this, but that is definitely for a future episode. So as I wind down this podcast, I want you, if, if this stuff interests you, I want you to share this podcast with other people because I think that is really um, how podcasts move in the world. I'm not gonna be running ads at any time soon on this. I want you to share this with a friend. Uh, and if you haven't read it, The Wedge really will go deep into these topics in ways that, um, I will attempt to do over time, but it's going to take time. It's going to take it's going to take me a while to start recording this and getting this information out. So if you want this right now, and if you like the sultry sound of my voice, there's audiobooks for both the Wedge and What Doesn't Kill Us, which also is more specifically about breathwork and ice water. And I'd love you to go check those books out and read deeply into this this material because it's it's wonderful, it's deep. I didn't invent it, of course. I'm drawing on so many other wonderful and brilliant people, but I think there's an interesting package here uh, that um, I have my own sorts of words for it. And thank you, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. This was a production of Pokey Bear LLC in Denver, Colorado. Appreciate you.